Well, welcome back to the Ben and Tony podcast. And today we're joined by Bronwyn Williams. Now, Bronwyn is a futurist, an economist, and a trend analyst. And she's also a partner at Flux Trends, where she helps business leaders to use foresight to design the future they want to work in. She's also the co-author of the book, The Future Starts Now, due to be released in April 2021. So make sure you guys track that. This conversation was, it was just really rich in its coverage, um, you know, covering the experience of growing up in apartheid South Africa and the distrust of authority that, that Lebron went to experience. He covered what makes the city healthy, dependency models with parents and how they may change if a parent grows ill, and intergenerational conflict and the role that that plays in society at large today. Bronwyn really approaches conversation with pace. She ties together her experience and her wide readings and provide some really interesting insights throughout this conversation. And we're very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse Kay. Okay, well, today, guys, we're joined by Bronwyn Williams, uh, a futurist, economist, and trend analyst. Your day job is a partner um, at Flux Trends, which involves helping business leaders use foresight uh, to design the future that they want to live in and work in. I could definitely use a little bit of help on that one. Um, she is also the co author of the book, The Future Starts Now, which is due for release in April 2021. And when you're not talking about brands and businesses in the future, you're probably going to be curled up somewhere reading a book. Uh, so welcome Bronwyn to the, the Ben and Tony podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Hey, it's so good to have you. And uh, I'm so, so excited to dig in and find out what on earth a futurist is. Um, <laughs> but before we kind of get into all of that, maybe you could tell us, um, we could start at the beginning of your journey. You know, um, you grew up in South Africa towards the end of apartheid. Like what, what, how did that go down? What was, what, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so I grew up in, in South Africa in an interesting time. So I was born in the mid-1980s. I'm not going to give you any more than that. I mean, you've got to keep some secrets in this world. So I was only around sort of like seven-ish years old when apartheid ended. And it wasn't something that had ever really occurred to me because of the way the society was structured. And obviously, when you're a child, you're only experienced or exposed to what you've been exposed to. And I still remember when I was just about to go into grade one, my parents sitting us down and telling us, you know, this was in 80, 1989. So we were very small kids, me and my little baby sister, and telling us, you know, things are looking very dangerous in our country right now. And there might be like a civil war. And they try to like, they try to scare us without actually scaring us. And it was such a strange conversation. I still remember sitting on the dreadful maroon colored bed in their bedroom while they were trying <laughs> to explain this to us what was going on in the country. And they had to not just just explain that there was like a security threat potentially because this was at the time that a whole lot of riots were happening across the country because it was leading up to the end of that really embarrassing period of South Africa's history but it was also a case of you know they weren't they weren't quite sure what was going to happen yet they weren't even sure if they wanted to necessarily stay in South Africa for example so we're trying to have this conversation for us about the threat and the risk but they also had to among that sort of explain to us what was actually going on in South Africa so that was sort of like the first realization we had as to what apartheid really was and what what you know the, the racial relations were going on in our country and it was completely like 
shocking to us because we grew up in a nice privileged middle-class suburb we went to a nice little private school which was integrated so we had schoolmates of all different races and in fact from different parts of the continent there too it was run by a church which was a slight bit of a cult itself the, but that's that's a different story we can get into later if you like <laughs> definitely gonna get but, into that later <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the race question wasn't really a question that that worried us as small children and I find that's quite an interesting sort of contrast if you want to sort of bring it forward to today because I've got a daughter who's about the same age I was who my parents had that conversation with me and she's got a very high racial consciousness in her school mm -hmm. so you know she she describes children by their skin color and that's not something that we've taught so it's how the children have kind of organized themselves whereas we never did that I don't remember that growing up in the 80s we had friends that were like very multiracial so I suppose that was kind of like the first shock that sort of made me sort of look at my society a bit deeper and I think that, th that that's when you start to question things so I was just old enough to start to be able to sort of think for yourself and to start to sort of put the pieces of the puzzle together and read between the lines that the, the grown-ups aren't quite telling you you know that whole concept of like lies to children where they kind of tell you what's going on but not exactly and you have to try sort of piece it together and from there you start to notice some of the incidents like the way the way the adults around you would speak to people of different races slightly differently to they spoke to people of their own races and you start to look at how your parents friends don't exactly look like your friends at school so you start to sort of pick that up and I think that that was probably my first sort of glimpse of being very cynical of authority I don't really have mm. that sort of natural respect for authority gene in me I don't know if that's just a genetic thing or if those sort of things of growing up in that sort of society where you really shouldn't be trusting leadership because they did terrible things was sort of instilled in you that sort of contrarian view so I think that that was sort of like the the first thing that that I can remember that was quite sort of pivotal in my childhood and very soon after that of course the parts I did end which was fantastic but the next thing I kind of remember there was that all my friends parents because I said I did go to like a private school so my friends were quite quite wealthy I was definitely not one of the wealthiest ones in the sort of community that I grew up with but they all had what they call now in South Africa minibus taxis so they were kind of like those like VW vans that I think you might call them in the United States and they all had them because they're all soccer moms you know like all my friends mothers were like you know stay-at-home suburban housewives that sort of drove their kids around and then did pottery in the afternoon it was that sort of sort of an enclave but very sort of multiracial as I, as I kind of mentioned and I remember just after or just sort of at the sort of turn of the when apartheid actually ended and Nelson Mandela was released how suddenly we started hearing about what they called hijackings. I don't know if you use the same terms where you are, where people were basically being violently robbed of those minibuses and they turned into taxis that we now have in South Africa, the minibus taxis. So everyone kind of replaced their, their soccer mom van with like a four by four. So those are the sort of memories that you have as a child, which at the time you are kind of thought that it's normal because it's happening to everyone. But as an adult, you're like that's totally not normal. <laughs> so I think that there was a bit of a surreality of growing up at that in South Africa at that time particularly in a sort of privileged enclave it's almost like a bit of a sort of Truman Show type world mm -hmm. and you have to sort of fight your way out of it to see what's real and what's not who you're being lied to and unfortunately as a child growing up in that sort of situation all the adults around you are lying to you one way or another 
And all the adults around you have real secrets and have real crimes to hide. And they were all accountable for the crimes going on in the country. And that's also very difficult as a small child to realize that in some ways, even if they weren't directly involved in the terrible politics of the time, your parents are somewhat responsible for bringing you up in that sort of society and staying in that sort of society. So that whole sort of destruction of trust in elders and authority figures, I think, sets in for me pretty early. And I think most people that know me right now would, would agree with that statement. Bronwyn, I, I'd love to, to dive deeper into like those, it sounds like you had quite a quite a mixture of emotions in such like a, like a, a time of upheaval, right? And you have obviously that cynicism for authority, but you know, I'm I'm curious, like as you're as you're young and trying to comprehend the the complexity and sometimes the darker sides of society, were you feeling was it like anger? Like, is it a desire to change? Was it like kind of a sadness at I guess injustice and how messed up the world can be? Was it like what were the range of emotions that you're feeling? Because it sounds like there's a mixture of all these different things at once. I, I would definitely say that there was a there was an anger, there's a confusion, but there's also an overriding feeling of fear. And I think that most people that have grown up in South Africa, no matter what sort of racial background you have or when you've got you, do get accustomed to living with a background noise of fear. There's this constant threat of crime and violent crime, you know, and, and there's there's also weirdly to go with that, there's the sense of being uh, guilty. So it's almost like not even being able to, you feel guilty even about being afraid of crime because you know of the, the historical crime that has taken place in your country. So that's a weird mix of emotions to try and grow up yeah. with that, that mix of emotions of feeling both guilty and very fearful as a child. I mean, like we've South Africans are normalized to this, but I think the rest of the world would be shocked by it. You know, the fact that, mm. you know, you've got to have, we started seeing like growing up, we had like houses that had small fences and then like everybody got taller fences, everybody, everybody put up sort of palisade fencing. And then a few years later, everyone put up like higher brick walls. Then people put electric fencing onto it. And then all the gates were motorized and then some streets were boomed off. So you were kind of living in this sort of like this background noise while your normal life is going on. You also had this sort of sense of literally wall closing in around you and I think we were speaking about this before we started the recording how today you know those sort of walls that have closed in have turned into entire like basically medieval like fortresses yeah. in certain parts of South Africa where these wealthy people live behind massive gates in like entirely self-contained communities that are massive I mean they're as big as like whole entire suburbs they've got their own their own like shopping centers their own schools their own central business districts and their own armed guards that patrol the pace so I think that that's very abnormal but you kind of get accustomed to the stuff while you're a child but as you were speaking about the emotions, I think you've got these layers of sort of like utter disgust at your own relatives, which is awful to feel. And I definitely have some pretty awful relatives in my in my past. So, you know, so that you know these people are like part of your heritage, but you can't get rid of them. They're there. And at the same time, you've got the, the fear and you know, and the guilt that goes with that. That's a very strange mix to try and deal with. And you only start to unpack those layers as you get older. So I said, I was, I was a privileged kid. I went to a private school. We were all part of the same community. But then after you left that sort of safe space and went to university, the next sort of layers start to unpeel and you start to see how fake even your, you know, 
enlightened world was as you get to get to know the the broader context of your society and university was a very big shock because you suddenly exposed to people not from the same sort of socio-economic background and that's why like in the work we do now we try and talk to people about diversity it's diversity is not just sort of box ticking in terms of the colors scorecard that's too easy i mean we had that i had that growing up but that's not diversity diversity is a diversity of background it's a diversity of lived experience it's a diversity of worldview and you know like that was that was hugely revealing to me having to make friends that came from different sort of socioeconomic backgrounds from different parts of the country who had had entirely different upbringing journeys was very revealing to me and that was probably the first time that I started noticing my own race because as I said like it was we had different sort of context growing up but uh, I think it's it's complicated it's, it's difficult to live in South Africa right now because you still grapple with all those emotions we've got a corrupt government I think they are indisputably corrupt and inefficient but at the same time there's a massive guilt among the more privileged parts of the population that don't want to challenge that authority because of the legacy of intergenerational guilt that goes with it. So essentially the corrupt leadership gets to get away with a whole lot more because we haven't necessarily reckoned with our past. And I know that South Africa has actually reckoned with its messy past perhaps a bit more than other nations, but we, we still haven't exactly fixed all of those problems there. And of course, the fear and anger go together too, because we've still got a massive crime rates. You still can't even drive around really at, at night. If you are a woman, it's not safe to do that. You shouldn't actually be doing that. You shouldn't be getting into a, an Uber at all. You really shouldn't be doing those things. Yeah. So we've got a lot of constraints on our world. We have a whole metaphor of a sort of we have nice wide open spaces in a beautiful country, but there is also that sense of the sort of walls closing in around you and a constant sense of trying to break through those walls. And those walls are, are of course, sort of virtual, figurative as well as literal. You yeah. have to make that effort to, to keep on communicating with people across the different divides. Otherwise, you'll find yourself being sort of sucked into those citadels, be they once again sort of figurative or literal citadels the temptation is there because that feels safer that's really interesting what you said there i think uh, and one thing that i picked up on earlier is around that kind of change in towards movement towards kind of compound living and the world around you the society was starting to kind of open up um, but people were moving into kind of militant style compounds um, at a similar time what was that kind of experience like and the juxtaposition between those two things yeah that position really just goes to show the, the increasing divides and inequalities. So as much as we've sort of like democratized the vote, we haven't democratized reality. And there's many, many reasons for that. As so we do have like a, a weak state governments, so they don't necessarily have the same sort of controls you might have in either the United States or like a China type government. Those are both like examples of strong states that are able to sort of control things like borders and control things like, you know, population migration flows and those sorts of things. We don't have that. So we've had massive immigration from the rest of the continent, which is which has accelerated the inequality because this is the, the shocking thing about South Africa. Inequality has increased since the end of apartheid, not decreased and it's increased dramatically despite ever more generous sort of social welfare safety nets and things like grants and or like what you might be calling now sort of helicopter money drops that sort of things so that inequality divide is of course the story of South Africa and that's why we've got sort of new waves of resentment coming now because we're talking about sort of you know a whole generation after the end of apartheid and we're still not actually fixing those inequality 
issues on the ground. And those issues are made very, very tangible by the escape to suburban compounds, by the literal removal of the wealthy and the middle classes too into gated compounds. So it's a physical separation of society. And actually just a, just last week, I was reading Jane Jacobs book on the, the, the rise and fall of American cities, which is a fascinating book for me as a South African because she was speaking about how healthy cities and she's talking about cities, obviously not entire populations, but how healthy cities have integration between different strata of society. People from different backgrounds bump into each other physically on the street. And you know, that's how you start to build like an actual society. It's made up of multiple connections and multiple different levels. Right, it becomes and that's integrated. Something that South right. really doesn't have. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's important not just for social stability, but also for things like innovation, for things like economic growth and development, and for things like safety. So uh, what she was saying about the sort of streets and the and the districts in New York City that were successful or not successful, I thought resonates with me hugely because we see this on a larger scale, especially since South Africa is not like a walking, we don't have walking cities, we have suburbs that you can only get around in cars. So we don't really run into people unless we have a appointments with them. You know, you don't pop into people's houses, you don't meet people on the street, you drive to your location, you get out your car and you go there and you only see the people that you're there to meet. Mm -hmm. So these are the sort of things that you start to see that the compound living, the gating ourselves away, the sort of denial of what's going on in the world around us, out of sight, out of mind, which is something that our parents were doing during apartheid itself. I mean, that was literal, that was a mandated apartheid, but right. we essentially still have the same apartheid going on, only now it's sort of voluntary but I'm, I'm using voluntary and, and sort of inverted commas because it's not voluntary for everyone obviously people everyone wants to live a more a more like a better lifestyle of course and in the same state what's happened is the sort of wealthy have been physically separating themselves from the poor although it's not explicitly along racial lines anymore in reality it still ends up being in that regard so optically how much have we actually managed to change and how much is just sort of lip service of the people in charge <laughs> these are the well, sort of questions that's, that's, that we have to deal with yeah that, that's interesting to me because it sounds like you're you're kind of describing the south african zeitgeist and maybe in in contrasting how that has evolved over the last let's say 20 30 years for someone from let's say your generation of south being like growing up south africa in the 80s versus let's say a teenager growing up right now how has the like the, the cultural identity and zeitgeist of South Africa change across these generations. Well, this is what I find quite interesting. So I've spoken like quite a lot about the South African context, but for me, it's quite interesting to see South Africa as perhaps being a kind of preview of the future rather than a sort of a, a relic of the past, mm -hmm. because we start to see a lot of these same sort of, of compounding and escaping into digital or physical sort of spaces, enclaves that match our socioeconomic bracket, because this was sort of urban, um, the reverse urban migration flows that you're seeing it happening in the United States right now is like away from your sort of like Silicon Valley capitals and sort of like luxury, you know, rural, more rural living and all of those sorts of things. So that's that's all kind of happening we kind of I've kind of seen this this happen before so that's the one way that we can look at it but the other way is in terms of the difference between the generations growing up now and perhaps like not that long ago when I was when I was a teenager we don't need to go into that that side of things I think we still part of the global context and this is what's very interesting about South Africa 
across the different racial and demographic lines, we have really been exposed as a nation, as in really anyone being born after the sort of birth of the television to American culture to a large extent, American and British culture. We know those sort of jokes, we know that sort of music is what people into and all the rest of it. And the reason I say that is that we also have the same sort of worldview from a generational cohort point of view and the same issues that are plaguing like millennials in the western world are also plaguing millennials in south africa if you want to use that sort of demographic and that's sort of my group and the next group after that would be known as sort of gen z's across the world and in south africa we call them the born freeze because the generation is born after the end of apartheid so it's oh, a very okay. nice sort of watershed there so that's like our term for that generation and there's kind of a difference there because we can talk about millennials have problems in South Africa are exactly the same as problems elsewhere in the world. Problem of like intergenerational wealth transfer is of course one issue. And bigger than that, the, the, the issue of the difference between the expectations we had for the future and what actually panned out. And that's of course what happiness boils down to and contentment. When, when our expectations are exceeded by reality, we tend to be quite satisfied. And when the reverse happens, not so much. This is when we start to see protests and like global issues, which you've seen all across the world. That's not a South African problem. It's a, it's a global problem because we, and I'm talking about my sort of millennial-ish generation, were brought up to expect a lot more than we actually ended up getting. I mean, we've had like now two massive economic crises and a yeah. pandemic thrown in, you know, and we still don't, <laughs> most of us still don't own a, own our own car let alone our own house you know so there's problems there but in South Africa that sense of disillusionment has been compounded because that we were the generation that was supposed to be like the rainbow nation generation you know we were like the end of apartheid we're going to solve all of South Africa's problems the happy rainbow picture going forward our lovely multiracial nation is going to save the world and all the rest of it and instead, we've become so cynical about that image of the, the rainbow nation. And that narrative has turned quite dark and quite actually, it's almost insulting to talk about it now. So I'm almost mm -hmm. taking a risk speaking about it on this podcast. But I think it's important because of the narratives and how that shifted and how we've been let down by that story. It hasn't materialized. There's huge resentment. So we've also got the same things of like pushing for, we've got the fees must fall movement. I know in the United States, you've got the sort of like cancel student debt movement. So we've got very parallel sort of like a, a youth consciousness movements going on in the world. But then you've got the next generation, the sort of born free. So we've got even more problems than we do, but they seem to have a slightly different approach to the problems going on around us. Whereas the, my sort of generation has sort of lapsed into cynicism or what we term in sort of future space like postalgia, which is like thinking the future is never going to be any better than it is right now. So we might as well just sort of, you know, be quite short termist in our thinking. The next sort of generation, those born free sort of generations are engaging a lot more in the political sphere. They all seem to be much more prone to doing things like getting involved with protests, getting involved with lobbying, getting involved with politics on various different levels. And I'm sure you've seen that in most countries across the world, how many activist groups are being led by young people, by teenagers, even in the stock market. When you start talking about the sort of TikTok yeah. influencers that are taking things down yeah. and like going after the man, this is the revolutions are being run by, not by my peers, but by people significantly younger than me, people that are still teenagers and early in their twenties right now. So that's another shift. The narrative has changed from one of sort of cynicism, which is probably my cohort, into one of more anger now, but also anger with a bit more energy behind it and less defeatism. So 
that is encouraging in some ways, but it's also scary in other ways because you know any sort of social contract breakdown tends to have quite a bit of collateral damage that comes with it. But in that regard, I think we have lots of parallels with the rest of the world, just with an added an added helping of uniquely South African problems, <laughs> which just sort of sharpen the eye of it. No, totally, totally. And 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 one one other thing that uh, you know you mentioned. Um, kind of in passing um, earlier when we were talking was around when you were, when you were growing up, it wasn't just this kind of complexity of the, the social political situation around you. Um, you also, your dad grew ill uh, and that kind of changed your understanding of, you know, what dependency is um, at a pretty early age, which is interesting because of the kind of wider um, different dependency on the hierarchy uh, and the structure around you. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, yeah. your dad growing ill and the impact that that had on you? Yeah, so this was just after my 13th birthday. My father had a cerebral hemorrhage, which is when like a blood vessel bursts in your brain and it's supposed to kill you. He was a gym. So by the way, you know, exercise can kill you. Just just putting that out there for your listeners. And <laughs> uh, but, but he survived. But he spent three months in a coma with like a hose pipe in his brain sort of draining the blood out. And after that, he started to learn how to like walk and talk and all of those things again. And since, as I mentioned, like the, the women in our sort of community where we grew up in tended to be sort of stay home moms, that was quite an interesting change for our family. So two younger sisters, I was, as I said, the oldest, and my mom then had to suddenly find a way to sort of pay the bills from being a sort of stay at home housewife. So that was quite an interesting sort of lesson in terms of independence and in terms of the importance of not relying and not having a single point of failure in your own life going forward. It was also quite a awakening in terms of gender roles because in the sort of privileged and I and I have to say it really was kind of like cult-ish kind of religious sort of overtone of a lot of my schooling you know like a women's place was pretty much to you know you got a, it was implicitly implied in our school that what we should be doing was not not trying too hard at our schoolwork we should be trying to find a nice boy out of our class to marry which is very old-fashioned and something I didn't realize how how different my life was to other people so you get a bit older because you're growing up in these sort of like these smaller suburban communities. This is pre the internet, you know, so it's not like you're exposed to, to the wider ideas. But I think my dad getting ill, and my mother having to actually start to participate as an economic citizen, and also me having to look after my, my really small sisters, that was it was a it was a, a life lesson in terms of not deferring to authority to solve your problems and the importance of standing up for yourself and actually taking control of your own problems because you can complain about these things or you can actually just go out there and you know make make life what it is for yourself so i suppose there's a few ways to look at it but it definitely changed the sort of the the breadwinner roles in our house and it hasn't stopped since then i mean my mom went on to get her doctorate after that so you know she she went back to work seriously and i think that that probably probably made me slightly more ambitious than perhaps i would have been if i hadn't seen how life isn't necessarily so perfect and privileged and suburban middle class like like all my peers is that it was very much a bubble that we grew up in so I suppose that was a that was an interesting experience to live through particularly at that age when you're just turning 13. Yeah what one thing that I noticed is, is kind of like conventionalism about going through like traumatic experiences is that generally you know th sometimes the more traumatic the experience the bigger the learning and the bigger like the strength that it, it gives to you so while while it obviously it was a tough time it sounds like you you gained a lot of strength from the experience um and that's something that is carried with you throughout your entire life uh is that yeah. is that is that the right way to think about it 
that is the right way to think about it. And I think that I spoke earlier about the fact that growing up in South Africa with the background of like crime and fear and all the rest of it, like I remember like fear was a big part of our childhood, always sort of looking after your shoulder and checking the gate to make sure no one's following you in and all the rest of it. I think that that experience showed me that you don't actually have to be scared because that was like pretty much the worst thing that could happen. Like people come and like literally tell you at school, oh no, your, your dad's probably going to die. You need to leave school early now. And you're like quite young and you get quite a big shock about that. And I think I realized I wasn't actually that scared. I realized it was a lot stronger than what, what I perhaps thought I was, you know, because you sort of grow up in fear. Fear is the, the worst part about fear is, is fear itself, right? You know, it's only <laughs> dealing with the problem is a different, is a different thing. And I think my mom was also quite a strong, is quite a strong person. So she was a, she was a great role model in that regard. Like not, not like falling apart and there was a lot, lot less drama than there could have been. I think that's, that's, that's probably something that with the, those sort of examples that's, that I got growing up have definitely shaped the way I deal with things. And I think that I'm probably I'm terrible at dealing with small problems. I get very frustrated with them, but at least through those sorts of experiences, you realize actually I'm quite good at the big stuff. So maybe I should just like focus my life on dealing with big problems rather than small ones, which has also kind of shaped the work I've taken on as I've got older. <laughs> Look at big picture stuff, not so much the small things. Totally. And I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting to me because, you know, you lived in a really complex, quickly shifting environment and uh, but also one where you're always pretty close to fear. And from that, it seems that you develop this really close kind of locus of control. Um, and, and I think that's interesting given, you know, as a futurist, uh, you now work to understand the potentials in the future so that you can better shape it to your will um, or to the will of the businesses that you're working with. Um, so I'd love to get onto, you know, that section about talking about the, the future. And, but before we do, potentially you could tell us what is a futurist and how on earth do you get into it? So a futurist is someone, well, futurist is the sort of pop culture way of explaining it. I think the academic discipline would either be called future studies or foresight, depending on what sort of university or what part of the world you're in. But the role of a futurist is to basically map the full potential scope of the future. To explore, we usually use the metaphor of like a cone, a cone or like actually like an hourglass. It sort of points backwards into history, getting vaguer on the one hand and then sort of widening out, almost like your headlights on the road. In, into the future too. And this, the point of futurism is to understand that, you know, we can't really predict much. I mean, we can't even predict the weather. I spent my Christmas holidays down in Cape Town and the weather app was off by 10 degrees centigrade every single day I was down there. So it's like, we don't actually, we're not, not very good at predicting even things we know a lot about when it comes to sort of predicting the future of society and economies and, you know, diplomacy, those sorts of things. A lot can change in a very short amount of time, but the role of futurist or foresight is to sort of scope the best case, worst case, and alternative cases that could come out in the future, obviously getting broader and broader in scope of what is possible the further out into the future you get, with a view to actually changing that. So if the probable futures that come out of that sort of like mapping and understanding of where the current trends are going, are not things that are actually going to make you happy, that are going to make the world a better place, that are going to be successful for your company, depending on who's sort of doing this exercise, or even for yourself, because you can, of course, do foresight exercises for your own life too. So what are the ranges that I have available to me as a person? What could I be doing? What are all the spaces I could find myself in? Best case, worst case scenario, trying to explain all of that sort of potential out there, the good and the bad, with a view to spotting opportunities so that you can actually sort of take advantage of what's coming at us by looking at the trends in various different sectors, but also to avoid threats. So I think that 
the whole pandemic thing that we've been all dealing with across the world over the last year and a bit is, is a great example of that because foresight programs for many countries across the world had predicted exactly that sort of scenario. It's a scenario that we don't have every single year, but it's a scenario that is predictable. So it is something that is possible that could happen and that most states should have had a contingency plan in place for, but many of them didn't. And most companies should have too. Some of them did, like for example, Wimbledon, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they actually took out pandemic insurance. So they're one of the few sort of institutions yes, that was actually, <laughs> and, and they'd had that because they'd been through sort of foresight processes and said, what are the things that could go wrong? What are the risks we should be mitigating? What are our plan Bs and all these sort of known unknowns that could happen to us going forward and all the rest of it. But then also looking at the opportunity side too, saying, you know, how do we make the future we want to live in? So like we like to say is that if we're doing our job right, as futurists or people that work in the future space, we should be changing the future more than we should be predicting it. And how would you go about getting into this? Like, what was your journey? It doesn't seem like it's a, an obvious low hanging fruit of a career. Um, definitely not the conventional path. You know, what was your journey into this? <laughs> well, futurists tend to be sort of expert generalists. So they're, they're kind of like three types of futurists of people that are interested in the field. The one would be the sort of pop futurists who make a living sort of basically being secular preachers getting on the stage and either scaring people about robots are going to take all your jobs or they generally tend to be professional keynote speakers and don't do much else besides or about being sort of overly optimistic and saying, you know, like fully automated luxury communism for everyone. Yay, buy my book. <laughs> Those are the sort of pop futurists that tend to give our, our profession quite a bad name because they are really just pandering to the crowd playing into people's fear and greed which is the classic marketing levers that you can have the next group of futurists would be futurists in the, in the purely academic space these would be people that have gone to university maybe got a, a master's or a doctorate in foresight or future studies which is a very academic sort of profession it's a, it's a newer profession they only started with those sort of degree programs in the late 1960s so it's a fairly new field but it is quite academic and it sort of blends philosophy with kind of strategy so you'd find like a sort of it sort of takes it, it, it takes off from where your sort of business strategy or MBA type programs end off, if that makes sense, to sort of scope a bit further into the future than what your sort of typical sort of MBA type SWOT analysis, for example, would be looking at. Yeah, they tend to take themselves quite seriously, and <laughs> they're, they're the ones that'll be that'll be telling people that you can't be a futurist unless you've got a degree which I find to be completely nonsense because some of the best futurists I know are independent amateur futurists. And I suppose I'm kind of in between all three of those circles. So the independent amateur futurists tend to come from a vast, very different backgrounds. So people tend to have come either out of the marketing or design space. Some have come out of the, the AI space. Some of them have come out of the technology space, but these are people that just have an interest in the future and in making it a better place. They're people that spend a lot of time with a much more macro view of the world, but don't fit neatly into academia and want to actually be influential in changing things, not just in selling books, for example, or building a speaking career, and not just in sort of producing academic papers on wonderful models about how we can think about the future. But these are the sort of people that play in that do do very similar work to to what I do these days. So that's the sort of background of what futurists are and where we all come from. What we have in common is that we think further ahead than most people. We have the luxury of thinking about the future full time and have the luxury of being generalists rather than specialists in a particular domain. This is why we're valuable to the marketplace. You can kind of see us as the contemporary equivalent of 
the watchman who stood on medieval watchtowers sort of scanning yes. the horizon for the marauding hordes because you know everyone else had jobs to do and and CEOs and politicians have jobs to do day to day. They can't be looking at everything all the time. So we tend to look a lot broader to pick out the trends and the threads by kind of having that bird's eye view of what's going on in the world. So that's our sort of role and space in society. As to how I got into that, I suppose I, I come, I studied marketing originally. Well, actually I studied commerce, but I got into marketing. That was my first iteration as a, as a career. And I chose marketing because I knew I was terrible at selling things. So I thought if I could learn how to sell things, I'd have a more successful life going forward. I just punished myself to do that. And um, <laughs> it wasn't that easy to find a job when you have this sort of anti-authoritarian personality that I have hopefully explained a little bit to you that I developed through my, <laughs> my strange childhood, and my, <laughs> my weird upbringing. Um, but I was eventually hired by a person even crazier than myself. And I thought I was being hired. Ooh, is, a, is this a, where the cult comes into things, Bromwell? Oh, I, I seem to have been cult adjacent for most of my life. Maybe we can backtrack to that. <laughs> cult adjacent. <laughs> cult adjacent, yes. It's the best way to describe it. But I went to work for an entrepreneur as, as the brand manager is what I was hired to. He had built himself a very successful business in the, the energy product space. So he sold like basically energy supplements, but he was completely mad and no one could work with him because he was, he, he used to shout at people and, and make staff members cry. And after he had tried to do that to me in the interview, I, I was so naive about how the world worked. I thought all interviews went like that. And I, I didn't look particularly scared because I don't have all the respect for authority genes that perhaps other people do. So he hired me and I found out after I was hired that most, that mostly what I was hired to do was to distract my crazy boss from upsetting the other staff members. So <laughs> I basically had very interesting conversations for most of the day with people that moved in very high circles in corporate and public sector spaces across across our country and in fact across in the UK too, which is where, where the where my bus came from. But those sort of conversations and the books he gave me to read was so completely out of my very sheltered sort of little suburban upbringing. It was a huge culture shock, but it was also hugely valuable to be exposed to wild ideas, big ideas going on in the world. The sort of conversations that we're having right now, but to actually get paid for it, to sort of sit and have coffee and, and have conversations every day when you're like really young, it was very interesting. So after I'd worked there for a few years, I was, I was definitely unemployable by then. But I managed to find, I managed to start working for a company called the Agora Group, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. I think they're most well known for publishing the Money Week magazine in the UK. And through them, I was exposed to even more crazy ideas because what that company did is we actually sold like investment advice and we sold investing ideas from the top investment analysts, this top economists from all across the world. So our role was to package those ideas into very easily accessible ways for retail investors. So you could say mm -hmm. that I'm kind of responsible for what's going on with Reddit and the stock market <laughs> right now, like training retail investors to be more empowered against the, against market forces. But it was so valuable because I got exposed to the leading global economists and leading global politicians that were contributing their thoughts to what we put together for our retail, our retail investor clients, but also learned how to package ideas in ways that took something that was very sensitive or very complicated into something that was saleable. But because I was working with sort of financial ideas and big global ideas, you, you start to, I, I suppose my perspective on life has always been a bit macro, but after working in that space, you just, your perspective just gets even, even more macro, even bigger 
and broader. And I started getting sucked into wanting to contribute those ideas, not just to sell them. And that's that's when I started doing some more writing on the side, moonlighting, doing doing trend analysis, and getting involved with with that side of things. And from trends to futures is not a is not a huge jump, yeah. but I, that's a sort of practical yeah. story. But in in between that time, I. I picked up a few other degrees in both economics and foresight <laughs> and future studies to sort of back up my, yeah. my opinions with some paper, because especially in this future space, it can be so wishy-washy. You kind of yeah. need something to fall back on to say that you actually have put the hours in, that you have credibility, not just because you've, you've got ideas, but because you've actually tested those ideas. I'd love, I'd love to know if, if you could explain like the novelty of your analysis and how that can apply to like, let's say making an investment decision in, the, in that previous example, like the, the approach that you've taken, perhaps uh, referring to your approach now, or when you're working at Agora, like what, what, what's that novel edge that you're able to analyze that most people, let's say, wouldn't be able to get if they were trying to learn about these things themselves? Or is it more just the fact that you kind of compile things in a presentable way. I just love to know like the, the novelty of yeah. the analysis you're making and how you describe that. Well, there's, there, there's an art of persuasion. I mean, like markets move based on narratives. So what, what we learned to do when we were talking to those retail investors was to spin the narrative, to, to, to tell something in a persuasive way, to tap into what people really need, what people really want. And that, that was the sort of selling of the concept because that was the interesting thing of, of working in that organization is that you obviously sold the service to the customers that then bought our research, but you also had to sell them on the research. So every article or every stock tip or every piece of advice that you send through to them, you have to persuade them that you've done a good job. And you, and you don't just persuade them by being persuasive like a populist politician. You have to persuade them with data. You have to persuade them with hard research. Otherwise, they no longer want to purchase your services. So you have to constantly be selling. You have to constantly be making sure that you not only have interesting ideas that are packaged well, but they have to be good ideas. And that's the other thing working in the investment space is that you are judged on your track record, which I think is also sort of nudges you towards working in the future space. Because unlike, you know, sort of economists that jump onto like your CNBC or Forbes or whatever and talk about what stocks you should buy. Uh, we had, if we were advising people to get involved with a particular industry or particular particular country, we had to go back to them and like justify that after the fact. We had to build a track record, which I think is, is something that's, that's scary, but it's also something that's totally invaluable in the, in the world that I'm working in now. We have, to, we have to make calls for our clients. We have to say this is where the world is moving and we have to be confident enough in our research, in what we've looked at, and in knowing enough that we can actually give that advice because we're putting that advice out into the public domain. People can check our track record. People, people will call us out if we are talking nonsense. I mean, we this is this is the, the world that we live in. Everything is recorded, everything is online. So you have to you have to be confident in what you're saying. But I think that we're I'm able to, to add value and where my partner Dion is also able to add value is that we have put the hours into becoming those expert generalists. So as I said, I mean, like I'm, I'm always studying something, but more than that, we're always reading things and reading very widely and very broadly. And it's something that people can start doing now, but it's going to be pretty hard for you to catch up with, with the amounts of different ideas that I've been reading since I was eight years old. I mean, I was reading like two books a day from then pretty much until now, you know, so you know, it's a lot of information that you've accumulated. Yeah. And that's the thing with information when you want to get into the space is you 
you have to have a very broad and a very deep general knowledge. You have to be able to connect the dots for your clients and so for the people that you're advising. And you can't do that by being a, a, a deep specialist only. You have to go for that sort of T-shaped person, sort of career building. I don't know if you've heard of that sort of metaphor before. You have to be very broad, but you also have to, have to have some sort of expert depth in your knowledge. And most people working in most industries are, are have like a vertical depth to their career. They're experts in a particular field. We don't have the luxury of being that. We have to be continually looking, not just at current like new research that's coming out on like from, from the science field, from technology field, from what's going on in like the news when it comes to politics and geopolitics and economics. But we also have to have a very deep knowledge of the of history because without having history you don't have context as to the macro trends and directions that the world is moving in so we really have to know a lot about a lot of things and that's why not everyone can do the work we're doing because no one has not everyone has the time to be able to just purely be accumulating and collecting knowledge into a sort of a general woven tapestry of the way the world's working and Bronwyn how long away is it till we'll be able to live forever <laughs> Some people say we can approach escape velocity pretty soon, but that's not entirely that's not entirely true. Uh, we have to also think about if we want to keep living for that long. And I think that most people that have reached particularly old ages in our more developed worlds are questioning that. There's a very big difference between uh, it's a sort of a, a middle class or poorer person struggling to like get through their pension that is living off welfare checks, wanting to live forever and a sort of, you know, a Silicon Valley overlord who has infinite pockets wanting to live forever in luxury. People do get tired of being here. <laughs> That's the one question. That's an ethical question. It's not for everyone. I know some people desperately do want to live forever. But you know, we're not going to get to immortality for everyone, but there is a possibility we could get to what we call amortality. So amortality is when essentially old age death is defeated or postponed indefinitely, but you can still end up exiting planet, the planets like or the, the solar system, Earth, the human project through accidents or injury. Or self-harm so so those sorts of things and it's not like we will be sort of immortal in the in the, the lines of the of the highlander not not immortal <laughs> as in the the sorts of like gods and monsters which is a different question uh, honestly though looking looking at the way what's going on in the world we've got to think very carefully about embarking on those product projects particularly when we start to see that already intergenerational conflict is at the root cause of a lot of the massive cracks developing in society. So there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic and optimistic about such projects. We also have to be realistic that although in theory, technically we'll be able to get past you know, escape velocity of aging, we also have to note that in the most developed countries in the world, those, those sort of longevity tickers are not necessarily going up anymore. In fact, like longevity in the United States has declined over the last few years, which is very interesting. So it's not guaranteed that we're going to, we're going to move in that direction, but theoretically a mortality is something that we could and probably should be working towards because what is a more noble pursuit of technology other than prolonging and preserving life? Because otherwise, if we don't value life, then what's the point of anything, right? Where do any of our morals or values fit in with? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of this topic personally, because um, I, I remember hearing actually, as you know, I, I previously was in, uh, briefly working at Singularity University, but I remember when I first heard Aubrey de Grey, uh, he was like one of the yes. speakers talking about um, 
this topic and I remember it really inspired me and the concept of escape velocity I, I was I left that talk as, as a member of the audience convinced that we are not too far away from this progress um, but I also realized that sometimes it's controversial there seems to be you know this sort of um, char characterization that oh it's just like a rich Silicon Valley tech billionaire thing where Peter Thiel is injecting you know his his blood with young people to live forever as, <laughs> as, as a crazy dude do you find that the topic of longevity it's controversial where when you bring it up, sometimes people have a negative response to this, because to me, I, I think it's, it's a positive thing, but I would, I'd be curious to know if, if there's a, a range of opinions on this topic based on your experience. There, there are a range of opinions. In fact, it's very split and divided. I mean, I've done talks on the subjects and uh, yeah, people, the, the audience is always divided. So people say, no, they don't want to, they don't want to live for uh, other people say they do. I think it's usually older people are less excited about the idea than younger people are. And we've seen this in evidence, actually, if you want if you want like an actual sort of real life case study or big set of data on this exact phenomenon, you can look at what's happened with coronavirus across the world and how older people are typically more resistant to lockdown measures and lifestyle crimps and are more happy to take on risk in order to enjoy the life that they have compared to younger people. In fact, like my generation has been the ones that are most keen to adopt the most protective measures, which is fascinating because you think that the more higher risk groups would be more pushing for stricter measures of controls to protect them, which I do find fascinating as, a, as an indication that for many people, the, the risks of living are, are a better bet than living forever in like cotton wool, you know, like, because that's, of course, yeah, yeah. and of course, it, it, the stakes, the, the stakes, even if we do get to that a mortality point, because immortality is, is not possible, you know, because there's always an accident or injury, someone can literally stab a, a knife through your heart and they block you in a box so that you can't get your replacement parts. I mean, like these things, theoretically, it's possible, but the, the risk is always ruinous. So if you have like managed to get to escape velocity in terms of natural biological aging, the risk of accidental or violent death becomes greater with every day that you're around because you know that that's how life works, right? This is how all these low risk statistics pile up over a longer and longer life, which becomes scarier and scarier. So you're also kind of getting to a point that the longer that you live, the more scared of death you're going to get if you sort of engaged in these in these programs which I do find quite fascinating. And there's also, of course, the whole egoism that comes with it, that the, the longevity of one person is actually detrimental to the longevity of humanity at large for many reasons, because of conflict on research resources, because of conflict over political systems. I mean, we've seen this. I mean, like as people are living longer by like a generation itch, you can see the difference between the sort of people in power in parliaments across the world and the sort of how, what the electorate looks like and the people currently paying taxes. Very interesting to, to look at those sorts of dynamics. And I think that if you kind of take a very big macro perspective, when it comes to evolution and the survival of the most successful species, you have to have a balance between co cooperation and co or and conflict in order to evolve, in order to survive, in order to be strong as a group. And this makes a lot of sense because you have to have cooperation against external threats, but you also require competition within the group in order to drive progress and change and dynamism forward. You know, that, that's how things start progressing. And when you start throwing in the concepts of super longevity and certain groups sort of, you know, resisting change, because as one gets older, one does tend to get more conservative, particularly 
over your own life, which if, if nothing else, conservative, you should you should remain alive and have have access to all those resources. It opens up some very very interesting questions about the about the resilience of the species at large. So I think that those are the really macro questions. If we do get to that point, I don't think that the escape velocity is something that's going to be available to everyone anytime, particularly soon. But we are making some very interesting breakthroughs there in terms of you know, reversing certain parts of aging and defeating certain diseases. We do have to just bear in mind that the, the risks compound with, with every year that we manage to stay alive, the, the sort of the, the chances of something happening to us <laughs> to don't stop accumulating. So no, no four horsemen of the apocalypse running down just yet, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like we, we could, this, this is the other thing. I think that um, once again, the whole coronavirus pandemic is a great example of the sorts of things that we think about all the time as futurists, these like risks that are known risks. We don't know when they're gonna happen, but they definitely could. There are an awful lot of ways for us to completely destroy ourselves as a species. And in fact, it was quite interesting for me when the World Economic Forum put out their report like they do every year, this year, they put a page at the back and it's nice, nice, like green and brown page towards the back where they put in like a whole page of wildcard risks. And I think they did that because they hadn't put in anything about potential of a pandemic last year, which made them probably look a bit stupid. So in, on that page, they've got things like nuclear warfare risks and bio warfare risks and all of this sort of thing, which are things that should keep us up at night, particularly since they are sort of, you know, eight ish billion of us on planet Earth. And it only takes one guy to unleash all of these sort of potentially species ending problems on all the rest of us. And how much do we trust each other? I think that the, the biggest risk to us right now, if we want to think about it, the biggest human risk. Previously, people were talking about things like, you know, nuclear warfare, and then you got the Rand Corporation, also futurists, by the way, who sort of talked about, you know, mutually assured destruction and how, you know, like that's not going to happen because we've got a bomb, you've got a bomb, no one wants to press press the first button. That's great. But what about the, the poor man's sort of in the world button? And that would be, of course, biological warfare and weapons because they are so much cheaper and so much easier to manufacture and deploy. So these are the sorts of things that should keep us up at, up at night <laughs> because they're there. They do tend to be, not all of us are, are altruistic. In fact, like what's it one in around about every hundred human beings is a, is a full on psychopath, like a clinical psychopath. So we should probably be concerned about those things More just, to chill your, just to chill your readers. I mean, like we've done terrible things as human beings, but those risks are real. They're as real as the risk of another pandemic. So you know, we, can, we can't wish them away. We can't live our lives in fear, but we also shouldn't be hanging on to hopes of total immortality forever without working very closely towards that. And in fact, if we want to secure immortality of our species, it's probably a better goal in ensuring immortality of our own unique personal selves. We do need to be looking at sort of off-planet options so that if something goes wrong here, if someone presses the wrong button or unleashes the wrong vial of Ebola virus or whatever the case is, you know, we're kind of spreading our risks as a society in a very globalized world. We should be thinking about these sorts of things. So I suppose that's that's my sort of context on the immortality question. What are we optimizing for? Species survival? or for individual survival. And then of course you can throw in the whole artificial intelligence sort of question on top of that to say that are even are we even the pinnacle of evolution on planet earth or is there something that's going to be, uh, have a higher moral and ethical worth than us? But this is how we organize. 
what organisms have higher worth is based on our intelligence and our level of consciousness, right? This is why we think that our lives are worth more than say the lives of an animal. Whether that's true or not, the way we've organized it, it is really based on our level of, of intelligence as being a level of, of basically living worth, which is, which is very, very interesting questions to grapple with if you want to get into the immortality space. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I and I think one thing as well, um, just knowing that you know you've you've you're you're a mum. So, what advice does a futurist give to her her kids? Yeah, I would say very much you've got to, you've got to live while you're here. I think that that's that's something that we we realizing more and more every day that we are spending times and lockdowns and all the rest of it you can't you can't wish away any sort of risk we have to be able to accept some degree of risk and I think the other advice of course is to think for yourself and not to defer to authority or to automated algorithms or to anything else because as I said I mean I've grown up in an environment of distrust and I think that the first thing to learn to fix that is to trust yourself to learn to trust your own judgments and to make your own choices and not to go along with what everyone else is going along with. Because all of our biggest problems in history have been when bad ideas have been blindly followed by many, many people. So whether you're talking about World War II or whether you're talking about apartheid in South Africa, these are bad ideas that were picked up by a minority. The majority kept silent or just went along with it because it was easier. We would have been a much better place as society if more people thought for themselves and actually stood up for what they actually thought, which is my my sermon for tonight. Sorry about that. <laughs> Do you know what the the other thing I was thinking of? Um, I mean, some of some of these are kind of more visible um, and 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 spoken about more generally. I, and I think uh, climate change is definitely one of them. Immortality. I've seen a lot more discussion around recently. Um, are there any kind of large macro trends that you're considering as a futurist which don't seem to be being spoken about um in kind of you know the popular eye yeah suppose suppose literally the population demographics and in fact that's, that's the first thing that you kind of taught if you do any sort of formal foresight or futurism is to look at look at population growth rates and demographics because that's what sort of that's a pretty that's a pretty in place trend it's one of the few trends that is going to be in place that there's not too much that can change in that in the short term because of course it takes a while for us to gestate and all the rest of it and there are a set amount of people on the planets and what's happening there is that for a very long time a lot of futurists particularly in the sort of 60s and 70s are predicting massive population explosions and you know too many people running amok on on planet earth and not enough earth to support and feed all of us this doesn't seem to be playing out. In fact, our, our fertility rates worldwide are declining rapidly, and they do decline very rapidly along with education of women, which is which is very interesting. So looking further ahead towards the end of the century, we're actually looking at the Earth's population starting to decline again based on the latest models, which is which is quite interesting. But it's not a flat out decline. Certain places are going to have massive inclines. And the balance of who is going to be born and who is not, and which which countries are literally dying because they're not replacing their own birth rates, is going to change the face of a lot of our relationships. And of course, being positioned in Africa, we're nicely positioned to watch that next sort of explosion take place. Because of course, Africa's demographic dividend window opens up around about the year 2030 to 2050, which is very, very very interesting because that's going to figure out that we're going to have the, the African sort of century that's going to be very different from the, the east-west century that we've been living in at the moment and we're not sure whether that's going to be utopian or dystopian at this point of 
point in time because of course demographic dividends are premised on the fact that large working age populations drive huge growth and huge success for economies. This is a lot to do with what's interpreted to be China's success over say the last few decades. But this challenge if your working age population is not actually working. And that's of course talking about problems of things like unemployment and particularly technological unemployment, but for Africa specifically, if we don't have the right skill sets in place over here. So lots of opportunities and lots of threats going on there too, but looking literally at birth rates and patterns is a very interesting trend. And just to add to that, but of added complexity is how we see now that sperm counts are going down due to plastics getting into our bodies and people are becoming more androgynous. Sex differences between males and females are diminishing, which doesn't bode well for the long-term fertility of our species, once again, sort of looking at individual versus sort of populational <laughs> or civilizational immortality. I think that's going to be probably one of, one of the questions we're going to have to grapple with, not overpopulation, but what happens when perhaps the human project itself becomes under threat. That's so fascinating, Bronwyn. And I mean, anyone who's listening to this, obviously, um, a wealth of knowledge, a broad wealth of knowledge as well. Um, how do folks get in touch with you? Well, you can, my company is FlexTrends, so we FlexTrends.com. Otherwise, I'm quite easy to find on Twitter. I'm at Bronwyn Williams over there. Bronwyn, we, we have, uh, we, we could have kept this going for probably 10 more hours. We'd love to questions. set up 10 other, yeah, yeah 10, 10 more <laughs> podcast episodes if you're into that. But as, as a tradition we have with closing, we actually have two questions that we ask our guests. And I'll ask the first one, more of a lighter topic, and the second one slightly more serious, but the lighter topic one, uh, what is your favorite romantic comedy film? Oh, romantic comedy film. It'll have to be a Disney film. I'm going to go with Hercules. I thought oh, that was yes. Classic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, someone on my. One. All right. Fantastic. Just my favorite childhood film. Uh, and it lives on with me. Um, so good. And <laughs> it's so good. It is just so good. The soundtrack. It oh, really is. Wow. When you hear those. Best songs. Best Disney the songs. Best songs. <laughs> so the good. best songs. Um, <laughs> I was going to suggest we will break into song, but we shouldn't do that. Uh, okay, the second question that we close out with is, is if you're sitting across from your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself then, if I was an 18-year-old me, I would say definitely take more risks when you were younger because you've got a very short window of opportunity to do those sorts of things. So you've got, to, you've got to say yes more when you're younger and then gradually sort of level up to the nose once you know what you don't want. So <laughs> I think that I think that's the, that'll be the, the better advice. Don't play it too safe. Don't play it too safe. Um, well, Bronwyn, it's been amazing to have you on. Thanks so much for, for giving us some time. Thank you very much. That was a very wide-ranging conversation. 